Oh, did I tell you about uh, a Liz at the at ballet two weekends ago? Mm-mm. Or gymnastics two weekends ago? So she had to go to the bathroom. So the teacher came out and brought her out. And um, that's like this teacher's pet peeve. She's four. Like I, yeah. I brought her to the bathroom right before. But anyways, so she had to go and there was someone in the bathroom. So the lady came out and we went in and Liz looked in the, at the toilet. And they had like the like the cleaning puck sort of in the tank, mm-hmm. so the toilet the water was blue. Yeah, and she turned around and looked at me with such concern on her face. That lady has strange pee, mommy. She has porphyria. If the kid had busted out, she has porphyria. I would have known she was truly my child. <laughs> But she was just so concerned yeah. over... I was like, no, sweetie, that's not the lady's pee. That's just the color of the toilet water because they have cleaner in it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the newest episode of Rabbit Holes Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Elise. And I'm your other host, Andy. And this is our Remembrance Day show. Mm-hmm. You prepped for that, right? Yes, I did. Okay, I did too. So. <laughs> Whew. Otherwise, it was going to get awkward fast. <laughs> <laughs> no sex murder. <laughs> no sex murders. Not this week. Uh, oh, I might have spoken a bit too soon. What the hell are you talking about that? We'll get there. <laughs> oh, dear good lord. <laughs> Hold on to your hats, people. That part of my story went from my memory, and I didn't want to delve too deeply into it, because I remember it not being the happiest of all stories. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll just send the therapist to this episode? Yeah, yeah and be like, sure. <laughs> It's like, well, no, well, unpack this, but <laughs> we should just send her the whole... That is true. I did tell her about it when I met with her this week. So I should probably like at some point circle back around to it and be like, if you want to know what like the real neuroses are, <laughs> I invite you to check out my podcast. It'll just save us all a lot of time. You just skip through Andy's stuff unless she becomes <laughs> also a patient. And then <laughs> she has a lot of neuroses herself. Yeah. But there's a lot of like behind the curtains on like why I'm such a wreck. That's <laughs> so, true. There it is. Yeah. <laughs> so um, my story's kind of long this week. I actually intentionally prepped my story is shorter. Okay. That's okay. Because you said yours went long. And then um, when I was doing mine, I was already um, three pages in and I hadn't touched the second half of what I was going to talk about. So I just nixed it. And I was like, I'll just do a slightly shorter story because you said you were doing. See, I usually do like four pages that will sometimes spread over onto five, but just a little bit. And this one, I think I'm at six spreading onto seven. Yeah. So this one, I'm just at three. So. All right. But let's dive in. So Remembrance Day, uh, for new listeners who don't remember last year, we do uh, army stories, army-themed stories, if you will. Um, So there was a lot on my list of potential to-dos, and then you told me what you were doing, so I was like, okay, well, thank you. That's one less thing to worry about. And then I picked a topic that wasn't on my original thought list. And I didn't even do what I said I was trying to... Damn it, Andy! I did other half of it, but I told you I was going to do, but yeah. Okay. So... My story this week uh, is all about peacekeepers. Oh, cool. It's an important part of our national identity. So some 
uh, national militaries have very global reputations. For example, the U.S. are seen as kind of a bombastic armed force. The Swiss are viewed as neutral and the U.K. is viewed as royal because they have their actual royal families usually serving in it at one branch or another. Canadians' reputation has been one of peace, 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 maybe I should actually get the word out as a full word. So, you know, like, yeah, yeah. Canada's reputation has been one of peacekeepers for more than half a century. I'm proud to say that my dad's deployments have been primarily on peacekeeping missions, so I wanted to look at how we got that reputation and what we've done to build it over the decades. So after the First World War, there was a recognition from world leaders that we needed a place to come together to talk about issues before they blew up into another worldwide conflict. U.S. President Woodrow Wilson proposed the formation of the League of Nations, which morphed into the United Nations by 1945. Um, we didn't learn the lesson the first time, and then the Second World War happened. But following that, the world was once again divided, and we found ourselves in the midst of a Cold War with a few hotspots that came up. Because of this division between communism and communist states on one side and everyone else on the other, the UN Security Council was often gridlocked by one side of the debate or the other because Russia and China are both permanent members of the Security Council and the Security Council has to send has to decide unanimously to send forces and so very often they got gridlocked. A force was created in the late 1940s that could be deployed to areas of the globe where breakouts of hostilities were feared, and the main objectives of these missions were to maintain ceasefires, stabilize local communities, and to provide support for political efforts being pursued to resolve conflicts peacefully. The first two missions, and these forces fell under UN control, so the first two missions were to ensure peace between Palestine and Israel, and then between India and Pakistan. Both, by the way, are ongoing to this day. Mm -hmm. So they clearly had a good idea. Sadly, they still need to be in place, but it was uh, an important foray into this worldwide policing force. Well, they didn't. Neither one of them blew up into a full-on. No, they're just at a. People of Kashmir may disagree at this That's point, true. but uh, and with a few blips around the Israeli. But yes, for the most part, it has not descended yet into another world war situation. It's just smoldering. Yeah. So these early efforts uh, were observational in nature, and it wasn't until the 1950s that armed peacekeeping began, and that's where Canada joins up with the story. So Canada's peacekeeping reputation began under the direction of then Foreign Minister and later Prime Minister Lester B. Pearson. One of the hotspots that erupted during the Cold War occurred in 1956, when Great Britain, France, and Israel launched a military attack on Egypt to remove President Nasser from control in what later became known as the Suez Crisis. Recognizing the possibility of once more finding the world drawn into the conflict, Pearson, who was the Canadian Secretary of State for External Affairs and one-time President of the UN General Assembly, suggested that a UN emergency force be sent into the region to keep the two sides apart. Uh, that force was put together and sent in, and for his suggestion and the resolution that followed around the Suez uh, crisis, Pearson won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1957. And, just as an aside, later on down the line, uh, the peacekeepers once again uh, became the focus of the Nobel Prize Committee, because in 1988, UN peacekeepers as a whole won the Peace Prize, the committee cited, quote, the peacekeeping forces through their efforts have made important contributions towards the realization of one of the fundamental tenets of the United Nations, 
Thus, the World Organization has come to play a more central part in world affairs and has been invested with increasing trust. So I'm going to talk about some of the Canadian missions that we view as kind of central to this creation of the peacekeeping persona that we have as an army. For the most part, they're UN, but sometimes they're NATO or other international forces, like other coalitions. So for the most part, it's UN, but we do have side work (laughs) in peacekeeping. We have side hustles? Yes, exactly. Uh, uh So we have served in peacekeeping missions all over the world, but there are a few that are considered Canadian through and through that have built this peacekeeping image that we have. And the first one to talk about is Cambodia. So more than 1,000 Canadians have served in Cambodia between 1954 and 2000 as part of four distinct missions helping to stabilize the region. So Cambodia had been a French colony and became independent in 1954. At that time, 30 Canadian troops were sent as part of the International Commission for Supervision and Control and an international military mission to help the country transition from that colonial rule to self-rule. While part of the mission, Canadians oversaw the withdrawal of French troops and monitored the borders to ensure neighboring countries respected the lines, because this is an age when all the colonies were kind of falling apart and borders were shifting, and Cambodia was guaranteed a certain geographical space, so they were there to make sure that the neighbors like Laos and Vietnam didn't encroach. Uh, They also provided election monitoring for the country's first general election. And then the number of Canadians slowly shrank until that mission officially ended in 1969. In 1975, however, Cambodia went through a military coup, which is when the Khmer Rouge came to power. For those keeping track, the Khmer Rouge are up there with the Nazi regime in terms of terribleness of uh, genocides. And under the Khmer Rouge, it's estimated that 2 million people died from either famine, forced labor, or ethnic cleansing. Within four years, Vietnam invaded Cambodia and stayed for about a decade, but when their withdrawal was announced, there was a recognition that a strong peacekeeping force would be required to keep things from descending into chaos once again. So in 1991, the UN established the Advanced Mission in Cambodia, which was mandated with implementing a peace agreement and to prepare the country for the larger UN mission that was expected to follow the next year. This advanced work was critical, especially given the amount of landmine clearing that the Canadian forces had to do. Uh, And then the larger mission began in 1992, and Canadians were still part of that. Peacekeepers monitored the ceasefire, disarmed the warning sides, and oversaw the reputation of hundreds, or sorry, the repatriation of hundreds of thousands of Cambodian refugees in time for the national election that was scheduled. Though there were only 700 Canadians out of 20,000 peacekeepers that were put into the field, our peacekeeping experiences were highly respected and utilized at that time. As peacekeepers in general, and we'll see this as I talk about the other missions, we excel at the logistics of peacekeeping work. So running supplies, um, and in Cambodia they ran supplies through areas still controlled by guerrilla fighters, they found billets for the incoming forces, and they worked with the UN command in the country to actually get the mission up and running and operational. And it was successful and they were able to wrap up and come out in 1993. So a very short mission, but very crucial to getting Cambodia back on track. But that's just like... That's our kind of reputation, even if you look at the reputation that Canadian forces had in the First World War, yeah. Second World War. Like, we are might we might be small, but generally, small we have a, like, you know, we're great at logistics. We're great yeah. at a number of things. We can run a lot of stuff. Yeah. I think it's because we're also generally really just friendly and get yeah. her done style people. So, like, 
go in, get her we done. We temper the American... Yeah. Bomb the living daylights out of everybody. But we also add humanity to the British stiff upper lip of it all. Yes. Yeah. So we're the... The, <laughs> we're, the humanity of... Yeah, we're the middle ground on that. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, on the strength of the experiences that our forces built in country between 1994 and 2000, more than 60 Canadians cycled through Cambodia as part of the UN's demining efforts, working directly with the Cambodia Mine Action Centre. Um, so, like, I, like 60 Canadians kind of throughout the years have been there providing, again, technical and logistical support on how to demine the country, which has been extremely affected by landmines, so... Well, I mean, you think of, I think of the, like, 90s that sort of, I don't really hear too many, too much about landmines now, but I remember, like, that picture of Diana in, like, the little, the full camo with the little bit cover. Yeah, like, the little, yeah, like, her going in to places. One of her big causes. Was landmines. Yes. Yeah. We don't hear very much about it because there's been so much work to demine, but I think people in some of these countries will still tell you it's still a probably very, very active big. and dangerous situations yeah. in some cases. So one of the reasons Canadians were so respected and utilized in Cambodia uh, is because we're generally bilingual. And as a former French colony, uh, our ability to communicate in French was a unique bridge to the local populace who would also, for the most part, had some knowledge or smattering of French and far more likely to be able to converse in French than a Canadian would be able to converse in Cambodian. Yeah. So, up next, Egypt. There are three missions that saw Canadians serve in Egypt since the 1950s. So let's backtrack a little bit to the Suez Crisis, which is the first kind of armed peacekeeping mission that we participated in. Uh, If you're not aware, the Suez Canal allows for shipping to travel from the Mediterranean to Asia without the pesky inconvenience of having to go all the way around Africa. Pesky and dangerous. And dangerous, yes. The Cape of Good Hope is not a fun place. Uh, It was built by a French syndicate with financing from the British during the height of the colonial age. And this is really like, Britain did a lot lot of trading work with India before the Suez came along, but like, the Suez was always on their to-do list. Like, yeah. they desperately wanted that link that would shave a month-plus off of routes. Following the Second World War, however, the French and English empires are breaking down, and home rule was becoming the norm. Uh, and Egypt had home rule. Uh, in Egypt, however, access to the canal was still controlled by European business interests, and Egypt wasn't down with that and tried to nationalize the canal. So... It makes sense. Like, why is this incredibly strategic and valuable resource being controlled by a European power when we should be able to control it ourselves? I get it. Although when you said French syndicate, it made me think of, like, drug lords. I think it was pretty close to that. (laughs) I was going to say, I think it was. You're not far off. (laughs) The mafia. (laughs) Uh, So... That's why the English and French kind of got involved. Israel had its own reasons for getting involved. Some touchy religious issues with their neighboring Arab nation. Um, But they kicked things off, Israel kicked things off, by moving forces into the region, while the French and English saw it as an opportunity and sent in backups to the canal zone in order to secure it. So diverse interests merging around the need to maintain the Suez control. 
As discussed, Pearson proposed an armed force to the UN, which was the suggestion was accepted and went down uh, into Egypt in their Blue Berets. And as a side note, and a fun fact, this is where the Blue Berets got their start. Because hmm. often when you think of pure peacekeeping, you think of those yep. baby blue berets. <laughs> that awful choice of colors. The reason is because Canadians were prominent in this mission in Egypt, but at the time our uniforms were a little too close in resemblance to the British uniforms. Mm. And so as we were there keeping peace and Slash didn't want to get shot at, we had to have a way to distinct our, distinguish ourselves very quickly and distinctly from the Brits. So baby blue was the so way to grow? Through, I guess. <laughs> well, the thing, like, you don't want to do red because... Um, when you're looking at a map in low lighting, they'll often use a red light. Mm. And so that's why there's no red lines on maps, on army mm. maps at least, because when you shine a red light on it, you can't see those lines. True. And red is also very noticeable, whereas blue can sometimes fade in. So there's a couple of reasons. I, I don't know, know if that baby blue can I don't know if I'd have gone with that particular shade had I been the designer at the time, but it is what it is. Someone had some extra fabric from doing some baby blankets. Yeah. Well, it's like the 70s where the Canadian Armed Forces uniform involved an ascot. So I think there's been some <laughs> questionable fashion oh choices. God, I remember you sending those pictures. That was a wild time. <laughs> and he, did we explain last year what an ascot was? Because some people might not know. Oh, it's just a really poncy tie. <laughs> Slash. Scarf. Scarf. Scarflet. It's not even a full scarf. <laughs> so for our listeners, uh no joke, our armed forces throughout the 70s did not wear ties for special events. Uh, they wore ascots. <laughs> Google it. It's it's a wild ride through the Google images, I'll tell you that much. Uh, so we went in as part of this large UN, uh, larger UN peacekeeping force into Egypt to secure the Suez Canal Zone. The force was there to monitor the border between Egypt and Israel and to ratchet down the tensions, which worked until the Seven Days War of 1967. But that's a story for another time. Uh, but we did our job. And the next UN mission that happened in the area was in 1973, following the Yom Kippur War between Egypt and Syria and Israel. So itchy and I don't know why. Probably your cat. Cats. <laughs> I know. Sorry. <laughs> this is the house that Fur built. Like... <laughs> <clears throat> so, following the Yom Kippur War of 73, the UN peacekeepers were sent back into the region to maintain a ceasefire while peace was negotiated, which eventually happened at Camp David, which is where we get the term the Camp David Accords. The Accords became the root of the lasting peace between Israel and Egypt, and so the UN forces pulled out six years later uh, in 1979, and this is one of the missions that my dad served in. Um, and he said it was a lot of training exercises and hurrying up and waiting. Hmm. Which, I mean, better than active hotspots. Yes. That's kind of what you want to hear from a peacekeeping mission. The only heart-stopping moment he had, <clears throat> uh, he and a buddy were sent up to the border with Israel. Um, there was some sort of miscommunication, though, and one of the Egyptian guards got his wires crossed and chambered a bullet into his rifle. <gasps> and while pointing it in their faces. And that's why he was yelling. wearing brown pants. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, they eventually got things diffused, and when the guard was lowering his weapon, he expelled the full bullet out of the chamber to kind of de-arm the gun. And my dad's buddy, who was with him at the time, scooped it up as a souvenir of the time they almost died. Again, brown pants. <laughs> yes, brown pants are very helpful in those situations. <laughs> oh, boy. 
Uh, so Canadians went back to Egypt in 1982 as part of a non-UN mission to maintain the terms of the peace treaty that had resulted from the Camp David Accords. As in Cambodia, uh, in Egypt, our role was primarily logistical. For all three missions, Canadians provided transport, communication, supply, and health services for the UN forces. And uh, that's what my dad's job was. He was a driver for the most part of his career in infantry. So he got to bomb around deserts and terrible Jeeps with no cover. <laughs> Picking teeth out of his, <laughs> sand out of his teeth now. Yeah. All I can think of is... Uh... That scene from Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Oh, yeah. When they're in, like, the desert with the the race. Yeah. He's holding the beer and it's just full of sand. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. My dad attributes uh, Egypt to his kidney stones issue. Because <laughs> the water wasn't good enough to drink. Mm. So they drank a lot of beer. Mm. And the beer just, like, destroys your kidneys. <laughs> so uh, Canadian Armed Forces disagrees with him. Whereas all of his doctors who aren't in uniform agree with him that Egypt did it. <laughs> uh, da -da -da -da. Uh, logisticals. More than 50 Canadians actually have been killed while keeping the peace in Egypt, which is the highest loss out of all of our peacekeeping missions. So, not to bring it down or anything, but there it is. One of the missions that has been in the news kind of within recent memory is the work that we've been doing in the Congo. Uh, this is another example of the problems created by colonialism and the withdrawal of a colonial power. But in this case, it was the Belgians who finally left the area in 1960. And I kept putting this in, like, colonial issue, colonial issue. And I'm like, I should have just put, like, a note at the top of the, like, story. Like, these are all colonial because basically that note reappears so many times. Yeah. It might be French, it might be British, it, it might, might be, be the Belgians. The Belgians. <laughs> uh, we could talk about the Dutch. Yeah. Like all of these countries, like we tend to think about colonialism as more of a British thing. But yes. so many, Spain, so many of these countries all had their. Yeah. It was a race to divide up the world as quickly as possible. And yeah. the one last surviving place that needed to be divided up was the dark continent of Africa. Yeah. So a lot of it happened there. And they all follow the same general pattern of go in figure out what the local religion or tribes were and then take the smaller one that had been disadvantaged longer and put them in charge because it meant that they were going to be super loyal to you. Yeah. But then as soon as you pull out, the larger group that's there are now looking for payback and revenge. Yeah. And that's why we see things like Rwanda happening and the Congo yeah. happening and Somalia and, and, and. Yeah. So. Uh, to that point, my next point, bullet point about the Congo is that Belgium used the divide and conquer strategy to maintain power in the colony. And when they left, they did nothing to try to repair those wounds between the natural, or not the natural, the local populations. As such, the, quickly, the country quickly fell into difficulties with political infighting, intertribal tensions, famine, an army mutiny, international interference, and widespread violence. There were still a number of Belgian nationals in the country, so the Belgian government decided to send in a force to keep them safe. They did this, however, without the approval of the new Congolese government, who, rightly so, question mark, used it as an aggressive, if not invasionary force. Fair enough. I'll give it to them. Yeah, I'm not gonna, like, say they're totally wrong on that. Right. Uh, foreign army. Yeah. bombing in to kind of the one that just left yeah left you with a pile of, like 99 problems yeah M maybe they could have thought that one through a little bit more 
So the Congolese government, not a fan uh, of that move. Uh, they asked the UN to step in, and the UN was worried about the potential for even more humanitarian disaster. So it ordered the Belgians to leave immediately and then sent in their own force to take away that kind of, but we're not just here to protect our own people. The UN sent in a force to do that and to kind of simmer down the, the tension. The initial UN force that went into the region had the dual responsibilities of ensuring the Belgians actually did leave, like, take your shit and go, like, we'll drive you to the airport, no worries, we got yeah. that. And to restore... This is no 90-day fiancé. No, no. Leave, leave, leave. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so they had to make sure the Belgians actually left, and then to restore order and stability. Eventually, more than 20,000 peacekeepers would be in the Congo, including 300 Canadians. In addition, thousands of civilian foreign aid workers found themselves working in the region. In this situation, peacekeepers had to be authorized to use force to fulfill their mandate. While armed since the Suez crisis, up until this point, they were armed only for defense. Now they were being armed for enforcement purposes. So that's a huge shift from keep yourself alive to no, we're putting you in the field to do business, like be prepared to actually engage as not a defensive, but as an offensive measure. The uh, the main goal was to keep regional power forces from breaking off and creating their own states and to keep the peace kind of between those regional power forces. I don't like to use the term warlord, but that term got thrown around a lot in the literature I was reading. Okay. Unfortunately, by 1964, the situation had not improved and the international military forces was were withdrawn. Uh, In the mid-1990s, violence in neighboring Rwanda and Burundi created a mass exodus of civilians from those countries, and they fled into the Congo, which just made things worse Worse. all the way around. A multinational force was assembled, including another 300 Canadians, at that time to go into the Congo and provide humanitarian aid and help to get the refugees home. A violent coup in 1997 in the Congo led to civil war and ethnic cleansings, with as many as 3.8 million people expected to have died. The UN returned with a military mission in 1999, which continues to this day. Canada is still actively involved in this work, providing supply and transport services, mission staff, and supporting humanitarian aid efforts. There are 18,000 UN troops currently in the region, and just as in Cameroon, because the former colonial power's mother tongue is French, Canadian forces are well-respected and wanted in these areas because we're able to communicate more broadly than someone out of, say, Tennessee probably can with the local populace. There are a bunch of other missions that I'm going to jump over from the interest in time, but we did play major roles in Cyprus. Between 1964 and 93, more than 25,000 Canadians served on the island. It's a tiny island. That is a lot of Canadians. Uh, The Golan Heights, which is the region between Syria and Israel, It's actually one of our longest-running missions. Uh, It's still active and has been since 1974, and over 12,000 Canadians had served there. Our peacekeepers worked following the first Gulf War on embargo enforcement efforts in the Gulf, as they were trying to keep a lockdown on the embargoed oils. We were on the boats, mostly. There was Rwanda. Uh, 1993 to 96. Uh, It's another colonial nation that was torn apart by sectarian violence. And warnings from Major General Romeo Dallaire, the Canadian officer in charge of the UN mission, were ignored much to the disaster of the civilian population there. And that's a rabbit hole in and of itself. itself. Uh, If you want to explore that, uh, read Shake Hands with the Devil. Yes. Um, I got through part of it, but 
it's, it's a rough hard go. read. It's it's a soul sucking. I um also there is a movie, Shake yes. Hands with the Devil, which um Roy Depreece. It's not a light topic, so the no. movie's not. Um, no, it's when I was living out in Orleans, which is a suburb of Ottawa, uh, Romeo Dallaire was living out there at the same time. And so I would see him and his family at the mall where I was working. I have never seen a person so broken. Like, I know. I've seen him on flights and stuff. Just to days. see him, you look at him and you're like, there's something missing and deeply wrong. And you just want to go up and like hug him. And I saw him once alone and it hit me. And then I saw him with his family and his family had kind of that like... Like they felt, yeah. it looked like they were carrying a massive load on their shoulders. Yeah, which I get. I just I, like I want to go up and hug them all. <laughs> I know it's. Yeah, it's a rough one. Uh, other missions that our peacekeepers have worked on in Haiti in the mid '90s, and again in 2004, to try to bring stability to the island nation following some political upheaval. Canadian logistical skills were used in East Timor following Indonesia's invasion of the island and subsequent violence in 1999. And from 2000 to 2003, Canadian peacekeepers were stationed at the border between Ethiopia and Eritrea to maintain a ceasefire and a security zone while final border negotiations concluded. So that was the lightning round. There's a couple more missions to talk about, though, in more detail. And the one I can't jump over is the work that we did in the Balkans. And I can't jump over it because my dad served there when I was 10 years old. So this is the one that hits home the worst, hardest with me. Uh, during the Cold War, just for context and background, uh, during the Cold War, Yugoslavia was held together by an authoritarian Soviet-supported regime. Once the wall fell and that regime ended, however, racial and religious tensions that had always been simmering just exploded. Yugoslavia was an amalgam of various historical states with a handful of religions, with Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, and Muslim being the main ones. These don't necessarily have the best history of playing nicely in the sandbox together. No. no. And everybody would think Orthodox and Catholic are close, but not really. But not really. And they're also so vehemently anti-each other because yes. they are so similar in terms of background and history. So they have yes. to differentiate each other. Yeah. Yeah. Beginning in the early 90s, various regions tried to split off to establish their own countries around ethnic and religious lines, but that led to ethnic cleansing that the world just couldn't ignore. Canada was at the forefront of the UN peacekeeping force, uh, known as the UN Protection Force, when it moved into the region to try to quell the violence. Canadians were particularly active in Croatia and Bosnia-Herzegovina. The UN sent in several missions, and NATO sent in a force as well. Um, I think it was the NATO force my dad was attached to. Uh, Well-deployed Canadian peacekeepers found themselves doing a wide variety of tasks, from active combat to clear safe zones for civilians, to providing humanitarian aid to the local populations. And following the conflict in the region, Slobodan Milosevic went on trial at The Hague for crimes against humanity, for ordering the ethnic cleansings. Yugoslavia no longer exists, but Croatia, Bosnia-Herzegovina, Serbia, Montenegro, and Macedonia have taken its place. Just to show you, like, how really divisive and crackly that situation was. Yep. Uh, like I said, this was the one my dad served in in the spring of 96, and he was paymaster for one of the Canadian bases as part of the I-4 mission. And he was saying that um, they were on the base, and it was like an old school zone with, like, bar barbed wire around it. And if you were going to go outside, you had to wear your flak jacket and your helmet, like, regardless, like, for why. And they would sit 
in the zone and watch the machine gun fire at night because it looked like fireworks because it was such an active zone. Stories he told me when he got back. <laughs> um, one of maybe someone we know, she is grew up in Bosnia. Mm-hmm. She has a she only has one leg mm-hmm. because uh, a bomb went off killing her niece who she was holding, but that's the reason she wasn't dead. Oh, just because, boy. yeah. So her cousin or her yeah her cousin, um, and that's how she lost her leg. Yeah. But that's. She grew up in a war zone. Like, yeah. yeah. Things that we'll never, ever understand. Right. A, a full, like, we could go, wow, that is fucked up. We can read yes. this cellist of Sarajevo and go, I cannot imagine how that would be to grow up in that. But I think it's also why our generation is so open to allowing refugees, especially like the Syrian refugees right now coming in. Like, because we can't experience that personally. But, like, we know these stories from our peacekeeping Mm -hmm. history and from, like, friends and other people who have come in. Like, I don't know that, and I'm lucky not to know that myself. Yeah. But, like, I don't want anyone else to know that. And if they do, I want to give them safe haven. (laughs) Well, exactly. (laughs) I think it was the mayor of, there's a village up in Yukon or something, said, like, Canadians are found all over the world. It just takes some of them longer to get their, to find their way home than others. I was like, oh, that's true. (laughs) I think, like, growing up... Um, growing up in Newfoundland, we always knew we were, like, we always knew we were immigrants in some way. Like, you might have been here, and I think I've said that before, like, you might have been here for a few hundred years, your family, but you know that's not where you came from. Yeah, yeah. Like, I'm a Newfoundlander, but I also know that I'm half Irish. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Catherine Ryan, the comedian, she was talking about she had done, like, a DNA, like, a 23andMe with her daughter, and her Mm -hmm. daughter's, like, 23 they're 33% British. Right. Um, and because um, her daughter came home one day and was like, those immigrants are taking our jobs. And she's like, oh, sweetie. Oh, honey. <laughs> Mommy's an immigrant because she's Canadian. Yeah. And then so she did it and she had to do it twice. And they kept saying like your test results. And then they were finally like, you're 96% Irish. Nobody should be <laughs> like 33% one thing is like. Hi. Hi. Yeah. And she's like, oh, great. So we were just like, she's like, what? My family was just like all loving each other. Like kids and uncle brothers. Yeah. (laughs) So back to our peacekeepers. For all the good that we do and have done around the world, it is not a perfect record. Uh, And I am, of course, talking about Somalia, which is where I had the, oh, wait, maybe this is about not great sex things. Yeah. Yeah. So Canadians served as peacekeepers in Somalia between 1992 and 93 as part of a U.S.-led U.N. multinational peace support organization, or sorry, operation. Similar to the Congo, the general region of Somalia was a former European colony that had a hard time peacefully transitioning to home rule. Civil war, famine, and sectarian tribal violence characterized the lead up to the U.N. intervention. While in Somalia, Canadians were active in providing escort to famine relief convoys, removing landmines, and collecting, destroying thousands of weapons. So we did great things for the people. However, our work there will always be tainted by the death of a young Somali man who was caught trying to sneak onto a Canadian military base. He was caught by members of the Canadian Airborne Regiment, and according to the testimony in the subsequent court-martial, he was tortured. There's an incredible controversy surrounding the situation. Uh, all of my information, by the way, I got from uh, Veteran Affairs Canada for the story, and even they are hands-off 
So to not full-throatedly defend their veterans and to be to take the the wishy-washy approach means that even they acknowledge shit went sideways on that one and no one should really be proud of it. Although they have taken wishy-washy stuff on should they they should be proud of. I'm just yes. going to say because I do talk about that. Yes, and they've gone the other way too and been proud of stuff that they really should shouldn't be. be yeah. uh, but the fact that even Veterans Affairs Canada isn't going to take a position, a positive position on that, really telegraphs that regardless of what came out in the court-martial, something was done terribly out of the order of um, proper military conduct. Um, the armed forces recognized that something had to be done at the time, so the entire Canadian Airborne Regiment was actually disbanded as a result of the Somali mission. Again, as in the Congo, UN and other East peacekeeping interventions proved unsuccessful, and so the UN mission ended there in 1995. So I don't want to end on that complete downer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'll just talk quickly about some of the work we did in Afghanistan. Which, who thought Afghanistan was going to be light? (laughs) Here we are. Uh, Regardless of what is happening there today, slash what will happen in the near to medium future with hashtag President Trash Monster's foreign policy work, we did do some good work there. Following September 11th, American forces invaded Afghanistan for harboring members of the terrorist group that led to that attack. And because they couldn't go after Saudi Arabia or Pakistan like they really should have, as we all acknowledge now, Uh, The country at the time was governed by the Taliban, which had been empowered by the Americans during the Cold War to fight the Soviets, uh, but had come into their own as a power structure and were wildly repressive and theocratic in nature. Uh, Also, the good guys in a James Bond movie once. (laughs) Which James Bond movie? One of the T-Dalt ones. Oh, yeah. Well, that would have been post-Soviet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That would have been era-appropriate. Yeah, he goes in there and they actually help him, like, stop the Soviet... Force. Yeah, because the Americans did teach them everything they knew. Yes, but I'm sitting there watching it one night, and I'm just like, "Is are, are we saying the Taliban are the good guys here? <laughs> what is happening? Like, I got real upset for a minute, and I was just like, larger scheme, Elise. Like, none of the Bond movies have aged well. <laughs> but is- at the time, they were seen as the good, like, well, quote, unquote, let's air quote this. Yeah, that's like, we look at the Saudi Arabians as like, the, the Arabians as the good guys of the region. Like, if you can look away from all the humanitarian issues, like, sure. Politically, yeah, they were the good guys. Because they weren't the Soviets. Yes. In terms of, like, human Cold nature? Were, yeah, no. No, not so much. <laughs> no, the Soviets were much better. But. Just another reason to put the T-Dalt movies in a safe and throw them into the bottom of the ocean somewhere. <laughs> oh, T-Dalt. <laughs> Uh, uh, widely repressive, theocratic in nature. So, once the Taliban were ousted following uh, the Western invasion of the early 2000s, and the direct conflict had wrapped up-ish, for the most part, uh, Canadians contributed to the NATO-led International Security Assistance Force in order to help with the establishment of the new Afghani government. As part of that work, Canadians patrolled... Yeah-ish. Canadians patrolled the capital city of Kabul... Uh, helped operate the airport and assisted in rebuilding and training the Afghan National Army, uh, which made us huge targets because the last thing the Taliban wanted to see was a country that could control itself. meant they couldn't come back. Yeah. They also worked at the local level to help with the, quote, win hearts and minds campaigns by working on humanitarian projects like digging wells, rebuilding schools, and distributing medical and relief supplies. And not only did our forces do this as part of their duties, but many volunteered uh, their free time to do it as well. So that was your hobby as well as your job. 
Well, also, for those people who are unaware of how the Taliban came into such power post-Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, watch Charlie Wilson's War. That too. Yes. If you can get through it. It was a slog. It was a slog. But at the end, where he's like, no, we need to rebuild. We need to spend money. And they're like, no. Yeah. We've already spent a lot. We're not spending anymore. And he's like, but, but, but. Yeah. And like, and this is how the Taliban came into power. Yeah. It's not great. So Canada's active combat role officially ended in Afghanistan in 2011. And the last of our forces left controversially in 2014. So people are, the Taliban is having a resurgence. The Americans are currently inactively negotiating with them. So it looks like the quote unquote democratically elected government is going to fall in the next couple of years. The Daily did a good couple of episodes recently. If you're interested to go back and look for those. I mean, sad and depressing as shit when you think of the number of Canadians who died, the number of like international forces who died trying to liberate these people from a theocratic government. Then the Americans are just handing them back the keys. A little bit par for the course. This is why I had to give up listening to (laughs) To the the daily Daily. because it was like, it was really hurt on my depression. Yeah. No, that's fair. Like I listen to true crime all I want, but. But that seems like a narrative story that's compressed and. It's still like block of info. Yeah. It's still hurt on the hurt, but it's not quite soul crushing. This is is fair. (laughs) I might have to reevaluate my listening to it. So to wrap up, um, a lot of people will shit talk and dismiss the work of the UN peacekeeping forces, as well as the UN, as an unnecessary expense. But in a world where an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, having stable regions means that there is less extremists coming out uh, to wreak havoc and terror. Uh, Humanitarian support saves lives, and free and open elections benefit all societies. This is work that the UN ensures and their peacekeepers are a part of. According to the US's then ambassador to the UN, uh, Rice, I forgot to write it down here, but I believe it was Rice, uh, she said that for every dollar the US would spend on a solo peacekeeping mission, the UN could accomplish the same ends for 12 cents. It's a huge, like, it's an economy of scale with them like it's what they do like yeah move aside and let them do it help them but let them do it (laughs) well they just have a lot like they just have yeah they can just pool from so many yes different areas and you don't necessarily they you might not to bring have to bring all of your equipment from the states because you can get it from yeah from the local militaries who are already supporting and helping yeah Uh, So kind of on that note, while the Canadian national self-image places peacekeeping in a very prominent place, our involvement has been declining in recent years. Uh, The UN has put up a fact sheet. Uh, So as of March 2014, we aren't even in the top 20 countries to provide uniformed forces for missions. Uh, The top three are Pakistan, Bangladesh and India, which makes sense because there is an ongoing UN mission in that region. So they're providing their own forces as part of that. So that I can kind of get. However, uh, Togo is number 20 on that list. So Togo does better than we do in terms of manpower. What's the population of Togo? Where is Togo? (laughs) (laughs) I believe it's a small island in the South Pacific. Around Indonesia? Yes. We're going to Google that. I'm... Fairly certain it has fewer than three, 33 million people, as we do, uh, and a smaller military force. So the fact that they're beating us, it's pretty hard to 
be a, a peacekeeping nation when Togo beats you. West Africa. Well, that's how wrong I was. Oh, <laughs> we both were. Ordered oh. by uh, Ghana to the west and... Benin? Benin to the okay. east. Okay, so there has been UN work in Benin recently as well. Uh, Rwanda will be around there. So, again, it's probably because there are local forces being uh, sent in for the, the missions there. Yeah. Lord Lovem. Like, all the power to Togo, but as we are the quote-unquote peacekeeping nation, I don't think they should be carrying a heavier, heavier load than we are. Um, on that note, for the 2013-15 fiscal year, the U.S. provided 28% of the peacekeeping forces' monetary support, whereas we provided just under 3%. So, like, President Trash Monster, and it's because I refuse to call him president, but President Trash Monster has a teeny tiny bit of a nugget of truth in what he says about the UN and that they provide the majority of forces or the majority of resources. But I mean, they also do that because they have the biggest army and the biggest economy and the biggest self-interest in providing these. 8 million people live in. There you go. 33 million. <laughs> we we kind of got the beat. for this country explicitly take into account the effect of access Excessive mortality due to AIDS, this can result in lower life expectancies, higher infant mortality, higher death rates, lower population growth rates, and the changes in the distribution of population by age and sex that would otherwise be expected. So what I'm saying is, if we're the peacekeeping nation, quote, yeah. big T, big P, big N, Togo shouldn't have us beat. <laughs> Definitely not. So, like I said, the UN's providing 28% of the peacekeeping forces monetary support. I think the next largest country is Pakistan at 13%. So, there is a big yeah. drop. Um, but, like I said, again, the US has the biggest army, the biggest economy. The UN is housed on US soil. Like, there are reasons why it should be carrying more of its weight. They do dumb more, more dumb shit than the rest of us do put together, I think. So, like, yeah, carry your, your load on that one. It's easy to sit back and say we need to do more, but I fully acknowledge that I'm not putting my ass on the line to go out into what are basically war zones and stand in the middle of a fight and ask everyone to calm down. <laughs> that's not me. Like, fully acknowledge that. So I think we have to honor those who do, those who did, and those who will, but also take a hard look at our involvement and ask if we can still stand in front of the international community and call ourselves leaders in this regard. Are and if you on the not, Security Council? Not permanently. And I don't think we're currently sitting on there. No, because I don't know if Trudeau has gone, but I know Harper only went to the UN once. Well, conservatives don't have a big, yeah. like, small-c conservatives don't put a lot of stock in the UN as a, an entity. But I don't think Trudeau's been there much either, so. Well, I think he was going more recently. It's this block of cameras where he can look good in front of, so. That is true. That is his, his jam, if you will. That is true. But uh, tell me your Remembrance Day story. So, my story. Uh, so I said for this year's annual Remembrance Day episode, I'm going to talk code talkers. Code talkers, uh, sorry, I'm going to talk code. Code talkers to be exact. <laughs> yes, I know. You're all over the place with that sentence. I know. <laughs> uh, this was critical to both sides of the wars as radios were used uh, to communicate orders and movements, but old-school radios, signals were very easy to intercept. I mean, you're literally just putting a piece of metal up into the sky and, oh, look, there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I caught one. <laughs> um, 
So as you would suspect, each side spent a lot of time and money creating new codes and trying to crack said codes. So I was going to talk about code breakers, which is what I told you I was going to do. Um, but I got three pages and I've not even touched on Bletchley Park or Bletchley Circle. Um, but, uh, and since you said your story was long, so I kind of cut it short. So let's talk uh, code talkers. Uh, most people know about the U.S.'s use of Navajo soldiers as code talkers in World War II. Yep. There was an action movie made about it starring Nick Cage and Canadian act actor Adam Beach called Wind Talkers. Uh, but did you know about the Cree Canadian soldiers who were also code talkers for the Canadian and Allied forces? I didn't. And when you told me that buying text the other day, you blew my mind. Because I was like, of course, it makes perfect sense. Why did I never assume? So we'll talk about a little bit about why we haven't learned about it. But Oh, I think we could all take wild guesses. Yeah. It's a while as to why we haven't really heard about it. But like... Because <laughs> our general disregard to Indigenous contributions to the war efforts... Yeah, that might be it. Or just in general to society. Thank you. I, that's where I was going. Just in general to society is what I was going for. Uh, so let's frame this with a little bit of context in which I found in an article on the Canadian Encyclopedia, a fantastic site run by Historia, Historia Canada. Who are the Heritage Minutes people? Yes. Call. I said call back to Canada Day episode. What? Couple of knuckleheads. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so when Canada declared war in 1939, or declared to join the war, I guess. <laughs> yeah. We got voluntold that we were in the war at that That's point. That's true. Uh, an estimated 4,300 Indigenous people enlisted. Uh, they did so for a number of reasons. Some cited reasons related to employment opportunities or feelings of patriotism. Other felt that enlistment would enhance Indigenous claims towards full citizenship and legal equality in Canada after the war, as well as better lives on reserves. Which I can see why they would have thought that, because that would be the human decent reaction. And yet. Because <laughs> at the time, they didn't have full rights. Well, yeah. One might argue that the fact that they really don't have clean water could show that they still don't. I know, that's such an outrageous thing to me. I know, right? That people living in our country do not have access to clean water, and that is not something a government either provincially or federally, is doing anything about. Oh, it's not cool. Like, Aaron Brockovich the shit out of these people. Right? Yes. Come on. <laughs> you and I have a weekend free coming up, right? Very nice. So, those who did enlist were met with, and I know you're going to be shocked at this, <laughs> racially ba biased recruitment policies. Are you sure... <laughs> That doesn't sound like something... No, it sounds exactly like something we would do. <laughs> With a majority funneled into the Canadian Army instead of the Royal Canadian uh, Air Force and or the Royal Canadian Navy. People listening, you might say, how do we know that this was a race racist procedure? Well... <laughs> I'm sure someone wrote it down somewhere. Enlistment in the Royal Canadian Air Forces was only for, and I quote directly from them... British subjects of pure European descent. Ooh, oh, that makes me feel icky. Uh, and that rule, that <clears throat> caveat was held until 1942. And it's even worse for the Royal Canadian Navy. 
was only for those of pure European descent and of the white race. Ooh, I don't like that one either. That one was on the books until 1943. <sighs> when the war was really bad and they were just... Was taking everyone at that point. Yes. So, I really have no words and I'm very sorry, people. Yeah. I don't generally like to apologize for things that I haven't personally done. Uh, I feel like this is one that we can all take the L on as the white people in the room. Yeah. yeah. I'm really sorry, because that's, like, there's nobody that can debate that that is not a racist procedure. Oh, yeah. As soon as you start throwing around purity, I think you've lost the moral high ground. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Indigenous recruits who did serve traveled from Canada to England, where they received their... Oh, hold on. <laughs> Thanks, auto-update. Uh, where they received their postings. A select group were told that they would go to London on a secret mission. While most believed they were headed for battle on the Western Front, they came to realize that their mission was more complex. On August 22, 1942, the U.S. Uh, Army Corps headquarters and the Canadian military headquarters began recruiting Cree speakers already stationed in England to use the Cree language to disguise allied communications. It's smart. Because, I mean, even North Americans, for the most part, wouldn't be able to distinguish it. And that would mean the Europeans would have zero chance. Oh, yeah. So, uh, according to Charles Tompkins, who we'll talk more about later, a former Cree code talker, the Cree were not the only Indigenous people recruited for this mission. Thomas uh, says that he, he saw an estimated 100 Indigenous soldiers assembled by the Canadian military headquarters, or at, sorry, sorry, at the Canadian military headquarters, or CMHQ, in London, from which Cree, Ojibwe, and others were chosen. Why Cree? Well, we don't know for sure, but because a lot of these records are on public and the ones that are are not researched heavily, but we can take a few guesses. First, there was a large number of Cree speakers to draw upon. Their language would have been unintelligible to the Germans. So, like I just said. <laughs> yeah. Second, many Navajo code talkers in the American military were serving in the Pacific Theater of War. Uh, this would have left a void for speakers of other indigenous language to fill in in the European theater of war. Mm. The fact that many Cree soldiers were fluent in other languages, such as English and French, would have also been a bonus. Yeah. So go back to your, like, why were Popular peacekeepers. peacekeepers, especially in these former French and uh, Belgium colonies. So what is a code talker? Uh, to quote the website for the uh, National Museum of the American Indian, Indian's not a term we use in Canada but it is a term that they use in the States. Everywhere has their different terms that they're comfortable with. We, we use indigenous, but it but changes in every three to five years, but also in Australia, you would not use it's Aboriginal. Yeah, yeah. Because indigenous is sort of derogatory. Yeah. So the fact that we would never use Indian cause that's derogatory here. Yes. You never say Canadian Indian cause yeah. Right. And they just don't care south of the border like as bad as our record is theirs is worse and continues yeah. to be worse but this is actually like the smithstone smithsonian museum yeah. is called this so yeah, yeah uh so they have uh they've done a lot of work especially because we know way more about uh, the navajo code talkers but they also did research here in canada cool so um code talker role in war required intelligence and bravery they developed and memorized a special code they endured some of the most dangerous battles and were maimed calm under fire. 
who they served proudly with honor, distinction. Their actions proved critical in several important campaigns, and they are credited with saving thousands of Americans and Allied's lives. Basically, they translated uh, vital information about Allied forces, including orders for troop movements and the identification of supply lines or aircrafts that were to carry out bombing runs from England. Code talkers translated the messages into Cree before they were sent into the battlefields in Europe, where another code talker translated them back into English and sent them on to their military commanders. Mm-hmm. No language was perfect was a perfect fit, as both Navajo and Cree do not have words for things like bombers and tanks. So they use substitutions, code within a code. And I'm not going to try to say these words in Cree because I am so white. <laughs> And I really don't want to butcher them because I think we've already done enough damage. Sure. Yeah, no, that's fair. <laughs> uh, for example, Cree, in Cree, they would use the word for fire instead that was used for spitfire plane. Wild horse, the Cree word for wild horse for Mustang aircraft. Oh. Uh, same thing for, um, uh, they would use, so like um, B-17 bomber they would call it um a, like a bee bumblebee yeah bumblebee so, yeah. mosquito same thing they would use a lot of oh. names uh words that were sort of na- uh, used in their language right. because they didn't have words for things like tank and stuff right um i think in navajo they they created a lot of like letter code mm-hmm. so they would say words yeah that was my understanding that apple but in it seemed like more in cree they would just use words as opposed to having to try to translate out that alphabet right um, again, we don't know a ton about it, but this is what I could find out. So the Canadian historians out there, like, seeking a master's or PhD topic, this is it. Yeah. This is new ground that will this be... This is painfully under-researched, which I do talk about. Wildly well accepted if you were to start putting it out in the historical discourse. Yeah. So that's my plug for a graduate degree in history. Go on. <laughs> uh, unlike their American counterparts... Uh, Cree code talkers, there's little information, but unlike their, sorry, let's start that sentence again. Unlike their American counterparts, Cree code talkers, there's little information known about them and only a few of them have been identified. Like other covert programs during the war, the people involved were sworn to secrecy and sadly uncovering information about them has not been prioritized. Uh, Charles Tompkins, a former Cree code talker, responsible for much of what we know today. In 2003, he was interviewed by the Smithsonian National Museum of the American Indian for an exhibit called Native Words, Native Warriors that featured the famed Navajo code talkers. It was Charles's interview that sparked interest in the story um, a piece and a piece of history. A short documentary was made, numerous articles, but the subject is right for rep. Uh, research and exploration. So his he's also done a bunch of, like, he did a lot of interviews and stuff talking about it, but 98% of what we know about it is because he talked about it and he, he has, he's since passed on. Ooh. Uh, so that's a lot of this is in the records, probably, if someone sought to actually go and extract it, but nobody Fine. has put out a request for information. A lot of this stuff has now been declassified in the last... Like, think of how much now we know about Bletchley Circle and Bletchley yeah. Park and that sort of work that we didn't even know 10 years ago because now a lot of these are declassified. further and further away from... Yeah. And things like information... Access to Information Act yeah. actually exists now. You can go and say, I want every record you have of that references this, yeah. Cree talker. 
Cree, Cree and code talkers and stuff. Um, in 1999, the American government formally recognized the wind talkers for their contributions. I call them the Navajo code talkers. Uh, in a ceremony at the Pentagon's Hall, Pentagon's Hall of Heroes, they also gave them service special service medals. There's only two surviving Navajo code talkers alive at the time, but their fa the family members of other members did get the special recognition awards. And then we dishonored them by letting Nick Cage touch the story. I know. <laughs> but I think that was actually one of his better, not super crazy movies. <laughs> Adam Beach was in it, and he's really good. I know. And he's actually indigenous. I so. know. <laughs> you think he, like, looked at the script, he's like, I really, really want to do it. Okay, Adam, but that means Nick's got to do it, too. And then it was just, like, a two-week-long, like, yes-no battle within himself. <laughs> Am I going to let National Treasure near this story? I don't know. This is way before National Treasure, though. <laughs> That's almost worse. Well, no. It's hard to tell with him. He has, like, peaks and valleys of crazy. It's hard to yeah. figure out where it falls. <laughs> Depends on how much he owes the IRS, I guess. James, where does this fall on, like, the crazy scale for Nick yeah, Cage? We need to... <laughs> Our resident Nick Cage expert. That is true. Uh, so, as far as I can tell, the Canadian government has not given any recognition at all. Uh, most of my sources are 2015 or older. I couldn't find much newer information on this topic. Ugh. Yeah, again, right for research people. Let your history folks know. I'm sure this... Tompkins... Most of the stuff that have come out, like the short documentary that was released, is done by his family. So, like, I, I'm sure what he's saying, like, I have no doubt about everything he's saying, but, like, you need to s triangulate and verify everything before it can become, like, historical fact, right? Yeah. Like, widely understood and accepted. So, to honor this guy, we need to start digging in on the paper records and start working on this. So, um, most of my sources, as I said, are 2015 and older. I could not find much newer, but I think this quote from 2000 pretty much sums up the whole situation. So, Janice Summerby, a spokesperson at the time for Veteran Affairs, said, All veterans have made unique and important contributions. A lot spoke in their native language, she said, adding, If Tompkins wants special recognition, someone should write to the department and request a letter of acknowledgement. What year was that? 2000. Veterans are recognized in many ways, and there are so many people who contributed. Thanks, Janice. Oh, Janice, you are truly a creature of your time. <laughs> Can you imagine anyone saying that today? No! Okay, because first of all, it wouldn't be a spokesperson talking. This would go straight to the minister for comment. Uh-huh. And the minister would acknowledge everyone's effort but would lean real heavy on the fact that these were a small minority and very, very important work. And specialized. Did. And specialized. And in our cool. post-reconciliation era, yeah, there'd be an I'm sorry and thank you <laughs> tucked in there somewhere. Again, this is why research on this should be done now. So has he gotten a letter? <laughs> I don't know. I have... I've. I've seen those letters as they come out of the army. Uh, I have gotten a thank you letter from the army for letting them take my dad for so long. Uh, it's bullshit. <laughs> it's a lot of words that says very little. <laughs> so I think we need to do a little bit better. <laughs> uh, so I'm not going to end it on that note because that just annoyed. Like, yeah, that was such a Karen. Like, she oh, is such God. a Karen. Yeah. Not, not. Again, this is from 2000. 
like I know, almost 20 I years know. ago but it's only 20 years ago it's 2000 do you think she looks back on her career and is just like that was that was the one that i regret the most i probably not unless she listens to this podcast and now she's or her family, family does yeah get it put us in touch with her we'll give her airtime to apologize for that if she'd like to because <laughs> wow that was from the heart janice Oof. uh I have a quote from Carl Gorman, a Navajo code talker. Carl joined the U.S. States, the United States Marine Corps in 1942, where he learned that when he learned they were recruiting Navajos, he went through all of the difficult training and was one of the original 20, 29 Navajos who were given the secret mission of developing the Navajo code. Carl answered one of his officers. So Carl answered one of his officers who had asked why Navajos were able to memorize the complex code so quickly. His reply was, For us, everything is memory. It is part of our heritage. We have no written language. Our songs, our prayers, our stories are all handed down from grandfather to father to children. And we listen, we hear, we learn to remember everything. It is part of our training. It's an oral tradition. Uh, there's lots of short videos out there on this, uh, but it's a lot of the same information over and over again because there isn't a ton out there. Uh, but it's an important story that would be great if we knew just as much about these soldiers and what we did as, say, the people of Bletchley or the Navajo Coat Talkers. Mm -hmm. so. oh, you're a history person. I know, but you've completely flummoxed me because this has never been on my radar. And, I mean... Not to discount the work done on the fields and in the trenches, but, like, let's face facts, it was the intelligence officers who, like, kind of carried the the flow of the war. Like, and so the fact that, like, true, I didn't take a lot of Canadian history, but I did take an Indigenous history course, and... That wasn't in there. Not on my radar. Not even a little bit. Like, it, flummoxed. You know how hard it is to make me speechless? And I know I'm saying a lot of words, but behind that is the speechlessness of, like, this is huge and a little bit regretful that I didn't jump on this as, like, a unique historical... Who's it? When so I had when chance. I... I was just... I googled code talking, I think. Mm -hmm. Code talkers. My first point of context was the CBC Kids website <sighs> on the stories of Canadian code talkers. Like I'm like I'm glad that like there's a generation like I'd be interested. You said 2015 was your latest, so yeah. So I'm not exactly sure. A lot of the like, like I'm glad the newer generations, the younger generations, are getting this. But like, when was this? Story? How is this not taught in schools and a part of our narrative about the war? Because if if our yeah, I don't know how old the article on CBC Kids is. It's a lot of the same information that I ended up finding other places. Right. Um, like when you think of our involvement in the wars, it's like huge chunks of our narrative are like Vimy Ridge, Passchendaele, uh, Beaumont Hamill, right? Like yeah. But one could easily argue that this work that the Creek Code Talkers did was, if not equally as impactful, more so. Because they were doing code work that impacted all battles, oh, right? Exactly. So, not to discount the efforts in those big battles that we all know by heart, but, like, the fact that this is so under the radar is almost criminal. I agree. 
Because this is the probably most recent story I could find. Yeah. And it's on the kids, CBC Kids page talking about Remembrance Day. And we're running out, like, sorry, like, I would assume we're, we're out of time with these people. That the yes, majority think, would have passed. Yes, yeah, I think just, he was probably one of the last ones. Or every his year at the, the Remembrance Day ceremonies, the veterans groups get smaller and smaller who actually served. So time is, if not about to run out, it has run out. And so for an oral tradition society like the Cree are, it's gone. Yeah. You have to hope that they had passed their stories down to their families. So let's go to those families, because the further away you get from the actual storyteller, the the less the oral history theory like, yeah, there's issues with it, right? So, like, we need to get these people in front of oral historians quickly. And then we need the archival historians to do the second okay. half of that work. There is that, and I'll hopefully, if I can find a good link sorry, to the documentary, his um, niece mm-hmm. spearheaded. Um, they won a bunch of awards for short documentary because it's only about 10 minutes. Um, but, yes, it's... It's about his story and the story of the other co-talkers. And mm-hmm. like, it was so important for... And also, he, he was re-enlisted after the war. He left the military and then he re-enlisted and he served for a very long time. But it was hard when you're Indigenous to get a promotion. Like, oh. You were often overlooked. Oh, yeah. You were, I think, his highest rank after 20, 30 years was a corporal. That's it's still enlisted. That's not a, an officer rank. Yeah, so, so that's a very long time to. Yeah, he was in the military for a long time. Yeah. So. Uh, well, you have angered me, <laughs> and <laughs> done some history that you did not know about. I know. I'm very flummoxed and impressed, and thank you for bringing this to my attention. I'm now like scrolling through my friends in my mind on Facebook to figure out who works in Canadian history circles. Problem is, is they're mostly British historians, mm. and the ones who are Canadians are like Courier de Bois era. So, like, <laughs> it's really British history happening in Canada. <laughs> okay, history community, we need to do better. <laughs> I get that we're not like we don't go back into the big numbers in our like white people history, but these people have history that go back a long yes. way, and it's growing. Yeah. Like the. The Aboriginal history, the Indigenous history as a field is growing, which is nice to see. But, like, queer history is growing faster. Feminist history is growing faster. Yeah. But um, in the post-reconciliation age, which I count from, like, when the Prime Minister apologized in the House kind of thing, um, the funding bodies, the Tri-Councils, so CHR, SHARC, and CHI-HI, not CHI-HI, and CIRC, are putting in rules about who's going to get their money and it's not white men anymore. <laughs> and that's good. Yes. There needs well, to be yeah. a... This is you a don't debate think it should be like, a lot. you can't get any money, but it should be a more level yeah. playing field. Yes. Like, that's just, that's all every, anybody is asking for, is a level playing field. Yeah. So if you are a white man, you've got to stick to these topics to even have a marginal hope of getting a research chair or a large grant yeah. to fund your studies. But I don't care who you are. If you this research this, this needs to get done. So yeah. if you were a white man who's like, oh, what am I going to do it on? This. This. <laughs> if you're not a white man, what am I going to do it on? This. this. <laughs> if you're purple and live in an attic, maybe get out. Yes. And then do this. Then do this. <laughs> we'll write you the blurb for your book. Yeah. <laughs> when you publish. 
We'll have you on here. Yeah, Yeah, that could be your rabbit hole. Come tell us more about it. We'll sit here like, tell us a story. (laughs) Like, really excited. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that. Uh, We hope you enjoyed our Remembrance Day honoring episode for this year. Um, Next year, come back with Bletchley Circle, though. Yes, I will. (laughs) Um, Some year, I hope to... uh, to do history on the the boats my fa- grandfather fought uh served mm. on but yes i actually need to get a bunch more information on being able to track down his record since yes. it got accidentally burned once come on andy <laughs> no i wasn't even born yet <laughs> but on that note we'll wrap up for uh this episode if you'd like more to learn more about the show head over to our website which is www.rabbitholespodcast.com while you're there, you can check out the episode page to get all of our show notes. Uh, Andy will give me the links to hers with hopefully the documentary link. And we'll mm-hmm. post that so you can check that out. Uh, our support tab on the website will take you to our Patreon page. And the merch tab will take you to our Redbubble store so that you can help support us to keep us running. Although, this is just an expensive hobby at this point, And I think we're both yeah. acknowledged that that's just what it is. <laughs> Yes, my husband has a lot of expensive hobbies, so this is mine. Yes. <laughs> it's not as expensive as some hobbies. True. We could be smokers, and that seems like a very expensive hobby to me. We could be doing a lot of cocaine. That's also very expensive. True dat. <laughs> if you want to reach out or see what we're doing on the social media for the next couple of weeks, you can find us on uh, Instagram at Rabbit Holes Podcast, Facebook, Rabbit Holes Podcast page, and Twitter on Rabbit Holes Pod. If you like what we're doing, you can leave us a review, or give us a rating, send a recommendation to your friends, family, loved one, or enemies. I don't care if you listen. Yep. Um, I think that's all I have to say. I think so, too. Yep. Thank you, too. Yeah. Oh, yes. Our email is rabbitholespodcast at gmail.com. If you have a rabbit hole that you would like to fall down, that you would like to tell us about, or that you would like us to fall down on your behalf. Uh, thank you to everybody who has served or is currently serving in the Canadian military. Yes. Uh, we are always very grateful. Well, yes. Because <laughs> both of us are giant cowards. Yes. Also, um, giant fatty right here. <laughs> I'm not passing anyone's medical test. Let's fix facts. <laughs> what? I am also because I get winded coming up the stairs from the subway the other day. I gotta hope there's no draft because I am not gonna help the cause. <laughs> At all. On that the note, wheezy asthmatic girl isn't gonna <laughs> help either. High five for Team Out of Shape and Asthmatic. Yeah. Uh, so on that note, there's only one last thing to do to remind you that there's only one last thing to do, and that's to remind you that if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. Bye, guys. Bye.